the exodus from Egypt and the desert of Amenta. Ancient Egypt, the Light of the World, Book 10, by Gerald Massey. Read by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. When roughly classified, the myths and legends generally show two points of departure for migrations of the human race, as these were rendered in the stellar and solar mythology. One is from the summit of the celestial mount, the other from the hollow underworld beneath the mount or inside the earth. The races that descended from the mount were people of the pole whose starting point in reckoning time was from one or other station of the pole star, determinable by its type, whether as the tree, the rock, or other image of a first point of departure. Those who ascended from the netherworld were of the solar race who came into existence with the sun, as it is represented in the legendary lore, that is, when the solar mythos was established. The tradition of the pole star people found in various countries is that they were born when no sun or moon as yet had come into existence. That is, they were pre-solar and pre-lunar in their reckoning of time. These are they, as was said by the Egyptians, who issued from the Eye of Sut, or darkness, the earliest type of which we reckon to have been Polaris, whether as the pole star in the southern or the northern heaven. These were the Nasi and the blackheads of the dim beginnings in the stellar mythology. Following them come the people born from the Eye of Horus, which was a symbol of the moon. These were held to be the lunar race. Lastly came the children of the sun. Thus the Eye as symbol of a repeating period was stellar as the Eye of Sut. It was lunar as the Eye of Horus. It was solar as the Eye of Ra. In the stellar mythos, men descended from the summit of the mount, which was an image of the pole. And still in legendary lore, they try to tell us from which of the seven stations they descended as a time gauge in the prehistoric reckoning of their beginnings. But in the solar mythos, they ascended from the underworld, which had been hollowed out beneath the mount of earth for the passage of the sun. Thus, there are two points of departure in the astronomical mythography, one from above and one from below. The oldest races that have kept the reckonings are descended from one or the other of the seven stations in the mountain of the north. And in the later mythos, men ascended from the earth below or from below the earth, the human ascent being figured in the upward pathway of the sun. These were the solar race who followed the lunar and stellar people of the past. These, when born in Egypt, were the children of the sun god Atum, who became the Hebrew Adam as the father of the human race. Before Amenta was created by the excavator Ta within the nether earth, there was no typical ascent of man. Indeed, there were no men until the time of Tom, since which time the race had been considered human. When the sun god Ra arose up from the earth or from the lotus, as the father of created man, or man the mortal, the legend of the human ascent was established and the creation of Atum, instead of being reckoned as the offspring of the old first mother, or the group of the seven pre-solar gods, men became the children of Ra, who are said to have come into existence as tears from his eye, or as germs of an elemental soul proceeding from the solar god. Stars were the children of Ra, the sun god in the solar mythos, 
souls were the offspring of Ra, the Holy Spirit in the eschatology. And here we may possibly delve down into one of the taproots of the legendary Exodus. The stars were looked on as a race of beings having souls of light that emanated from the sun. To these, the solar race, as human beings, were affiliated by means of the totemic types, which included the crocodile of Sebek, the beast of Bess, the hawk of Horus, the scarabaeus of Keper. Hence it is said by the god Ra to the righteous in Amenta, You yourselves are tears of mine eye in your person of superior men. I have shed abroad my seed for you. These were the seed of Ra, who, as figured, were born like a tear from his eye, as a mode of affluence. And being solar, they were the superior race of men, the Ruti, or men par excellence. Under the name of Kabsu in Egyptian, the stars are synonymous with souls. These, in their nightly rising from Amenta, were the images of souls becoming glorified. They came forth in their thousands and tens of thousands from the lower Egypt of the astronomical mythos, the earliest exodus being stellar. Thus we can realize the leader Shu, who stands upon the height of heaven, rod in hand, and who was imaged in the constellation Kepheus as the regulus or lawgiver at the pole. In the destruction of mankind, the stars are said to be the multitudes which live in the nocturnal sky. In this underworld, Tot, the moon god, is called the luminary of Ra, in the inferior heaven, and in the deep region where he inscribes the inhabitants. And it is said to him, Thou art the keeper of those who do evil, whom my heart abhors. That was the reckoner of the stars here called the inhabitants of the nocturnal heaven, or sky of Amenta whose names or numbers were inscribed by him, possibly as 600 stars, which number was extended by the Jewish Kabbalists to their 600,000 souls in Guf. Be this as it may, here are the souls in Amenta represented by stars as inhabitants of the underworld. And in the new creation by Atum Ra, god of the nocturnal sun, they are spoken of as these multitudes of men. Ra orders that this heaven shall be depicted as a field of rest. And there arose the Elysian Fields, or Paradise of Plenty on Mount Atep. In this new heaven, says Ra, I establish as inhabitants all the beings which are suspended in the sky, the stars, said by the majesty of Ra, to Nut. I assemble there the multitudes, that they may celebrate thee. And there arose the multitudes. These multitudes as stars had been the inhabitants in the deep region of the inferior sky. Ra, having been lifted up as God alone in this new heaven of the astronomical mythos, the stars that were in the lower are to be assembled and grouped together in the upper heaven. This is followed by the stellar exodus from lower Egypt and the desert of Amenta, under the leadership of Shu Anhur, the uplifter of the sky together with its inhabitants, the stars, called the children of Nut, or heaven. It is said by Ra, My own son Shu, take with thee my daughter Nut, and be the guardian of the multitudes which live in the nocturnal sky, or the sky in the lower Egypt of Amenta. Put them on thy head and be their fosterer, or sustainer. Then, as said in the hymn to the god Shu, uplifted is the sky which he maintains with his two arms, 
as king of Upper and Lower Egypt. In his new character of Shusi Ra, who in the solar mythos had become the son of Ra. In the ritual, heaven is described as the mansion of Shu, the mansion of his stars, which was nightly renewed as the beautiful creation which he raiseth up. We have now delved down to an origin of the Egyptian exodus in the stellar mythos. Shu was the uplifter of the sky under his name of Anhur with his rod. As raiser of the firmament, he uplifts the starry host or multitude of beings known as the offspring of Nut, or later the seed of Ra, or later still the children of Ra. These were previously the dwellers in the lower Egypt of the mythos, who were to be set free from this realm of darkness and gathered together in the land of light, the starry heaven of Nut on high. Their deliverer was Shu Anher, the leader up to heaven with his rod as repeller of the dragon coming out of the abyss. This exodus belongs to the rendering in the mythology and underlies the Param Pru, or coming forth to the day according to the Book of the Dead, in which the mythos has become the mold of the eschatology. The resurrection of souls has taken the place of the stars in the stellar, and of the sun in the solar mythos. The exodus was now the coming forth of the Manis from Egypt and the desert as localities in the mysteries of Amenta. This was then made geographical and practical by literalization in that exodus. The Israelites from the land of the pharaohs, which has hitherto passed as biblical history. In reviewing M. Renan's work in Israel, a recent writer asks, what then is the origin and significance of the Exodus and its attendant plagues and prodigies? When did they come? Where or when were they invented? The monuments are never likely to tell us. No, not if we are looking for the Palestinian Jews in Egypt as an ethnological entity, or for the ancient Egyptian fables as biblical facts. But when we get clear of that cloud of iridescent dust which the Jewish writings have interposed betwixt us and the monuments, we shall find they do tell us more or less what the origin of the wonderful tale by which the world had been beguiled so blindly through mistaking verifiable myth for God's own historic word. The sufferings of the chosen people in Egypt and their miraculous exodus out of it belong to the celestial allegory of the solar drama that was performed in the mysteries of the divine netherworld and had been performed as a mythical representation ages before it was converted into a history of the Jews by the literalizers of the ancient legends. The tale of the ten plagues in Egypt contains an esoteric version of the tortures inflicted on the guilty in the ten hells of the underworld. We have seen somewhat of the descent of mankind from a celestial birthplace that was constellated as an enclosure on the mountain of the pole. We have now to trace the ascent from the regions of the nether earth, which, as Egyptian, is an exodus from lower Egypt and the desert of Amenta. We shall have to make the journey through this nether earth once more in following the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and the character of the Manis issuing from Amenta. The legend of the Exodus, or coming forth today, like those of the creation, the deluge, and the lost paradise in the book of Genesis, belongs to that mythology which underlies and is the source of all the Mark Chen and the folklore of the world. 
The clue, as will be shown, has been preserved in what is commonly termed the wisdom of the ancients, which we hold to be Egyptian in its origin, and derivative of all the other lines of its descent. We find the mythos, the legends, and the folk tales of the world are all involved in the Egyptian wisdom, and the Hebrew traditions are demonstrably the debris of Egyptian myth and eschatology. But, of all the various versions of the coming forth or exodus from out the underworld, not one has caused such deep perplexity as this of Israel issuing from Egypt, in which the mythos has been misappropriated and converted into an ethnical history. As Egyptian, it was not pretended that the children of Ra were ethnical, or that the mysteries of Amenta were transactions in the earth of time. The way up from Amenta was variously portrayed as an ascent by means of steps, by scaling a mount, or by climbing a tree, a grapevine, a reed, a beanstalk, or a papyrus reed. In the legends of many races, we find the tradition of a deliverance from some subterranean dwelling place, which was their primeval home. This exodus from the underworld is common in the Mar Chen of the Red Men. With the Lenny Lenape Indians, the beginning was in a subterranean abode, out of which they were led by the wolf as their chief totemic zootype. Now the wolf is an equivalent for the jackal. In Egyptian, the wolf and jackal, Seb, are synonymous, and the jackal was the guide of Rhodes and Amenta, who led the people through its wilderness and showed a way for them to ascend into the world of light. All the myths and legends of the underworld depend on there being an underworld or nether earth. And this again depends on there being a double earth, which was hollowed out by the god who represented the nocturnal sun for the passage through the mount of earth by night. And who, as Egyptian, was Ta, the founder of Amenta. In the Mandan tradition of their origin, it is related that the whole nation once resided in one large village underground beside a subterraneous lake. A grapevine extended its roots down to their habitation and gave them an upward view of the light. Some of the more adventurous spirits climbed up the vine and found themselves in a lovely region full of buffaloes and rich with every kind of fruit. From this they returned with the grapes they had gathered, like the men who had gone forth to spy out the land in another version of the mythos. Their fellow countrymen were so delighted with the taste of their newly found fruit that men, women, and children determined to leave their lower earth and ascend to the upper by means of the grapevine. But when the people were about halfway, a corpulent woman who was clambering up the vine broke it with her weight. This closed the aperture upon herself and the rest of the nation, and shut out the light of the sun. But when the Mandans die, they expect to return to this, the original country of their forefathers, the good reaching the ancient village of the vine by means of the lake, which the wicked will not be able to cross by reason of the burden of their sins. Lewis and Clark This land of the forefathers was that of the ancestral spirits, the country of the tree of life here identified with the vine. The subterranean lake is one with the lake in tattoo. The corpulent woman is the great mother, who is the Encentie Apt, or Hathor, in Egypt, whose tree is the sycamore fig. The double earth is the same as in the ritual. Consequently, the vine is the tree of dawn, 
up which the sun and souls ascended from the Tuat by means of the tree. The exodus from the nether earth or lower Egypt is the same as in the Hebrew and other versions of the mythos, the original of which is provably Egyptian. The Kish Popovo portrays the ancestors of the race as wanderers in the wilderness upon their way to the place where the sun was to rise. They also crossed the water, which divided whilst they passed, and which they went through just as if there had been no sea. They passed on the scattered rocks rolled on the sands that served for stepping stones. This is why the place was called Ranged Stones and Torn Up Sands, the name that was given to it on their passage through the waters that divided as they went. At last they came to a mountain where, as they had been told, they were to see the sun rise for the first time. This was the Mount of Glory in the solar mythos, and the waters which were crossed were those of the celestial nun. The ranged stones in the waters correspond to the twelve stones that were set up by Joshua to mark the spot where the waters were held up for the Israelites to pass dry-footed through the River Jordan. In the Hawaiian tradition, the king of the country named Honua Ailalo was the oppressor of the Menehun people. Their god Cain sent Kainapua and Kanaloa, the elder brother, to bring away the oppressed people and take them to a land which Cain, their god, had given them. The legend further tells how they came to the Red Sea of Cain, Kaiula Akain, and were pursued by Ki Ali Wahanui. Thereupon, Cain Apua and Kanaloa prayed to Lono. And then they waded safely through the sea and wandered in the desolate wilderness until at last they reached the promised land of Cain, called Ena Luena Akain. This, says Fernander, is an ancient legend, which also contained the story of water being made to gush forth from a rock. The passage of the Red Sea and the destruction of those who follow the fugitives are also found in a Hottentot fable. Hitsi Ibib was once traveling with a great number of his people when they were pursued by the enemy on arriving at the water, which had to be crossed as the only way of escape. The leader said, My grandfather's father, open thyself that I may pass through and close thyself afterwards. So it took place, as he had said, and they crossed the water safely. Then the pursuing enemy tried to pass through the opening likewise. But when they were in the midst of the divided water, it closed upon them, and they perished. In this, the personification of the water as the first father, God the grandfather, is in accordance with the Egyptian Nu, or celestial water, who is represented as the primordial male divinity, the father of the fathers, including Ra, the solar god. The new or none identifies the water as celestial, and it is this that divides to let the sun god and his followers pass through dryshod. These in the ritual are pursued by the Apap and the Sabao to the edge of the horizon. Then the water of day overwhelms the powers of darkness, and Apap, the dragon with all his evil hosts, are overthrown, submerged, and drowned in the waters of the lower none. They are described in the magic papyrus as the emerged, who do not pass or go along, but remain floating on the waters like dead bodies drifting on the inundation, with their mouths forever shut and sealed. 
In another version of the Hottentot legend, a Nama woman and her brothers are pursued by an elephant. Stone of my ancestors, cry the fleeing ones, divide for us. The stone opens and they pass. The pursuer used the same words and the rock opened for him also. But it closed on the elephant and crushed it to death. The fable can be read by means of the Egyptian wisdom. It belongs to the war that was waged forever betwixt the powers of darkness and light. In the Egyptian mythos, the pursuing monster is the Apap dragon of the deep. In place of the elephant, pursues the children of light who are escaping from the underworld. They reach the rock of the horizon of the Sirhil, which opens for the coming forth and closes again when the pursued ones have passed through in safety. Shu equals Moses stands upon the rock to smite it with his rod, with the result that the waters of day gush forth in light. This is the water of heaven set flowing from the rock of the horizon for those who are followed by the Apap reptile of darkness and consuming drought. The sun god in the ritual staggers forth upon the mount with many wounds, but Apap is caught and crushed and cut up piecemeal in the place appointed for the dragon to be drowned in the red lake of the mythos. Through this Red Sea, the follows of Ra, of Hetzi Ibib, or Jehovah, pass in triumph on their way to land of the promise on the Mount of Glory. But the hosts of evil are continually overthrown. The starting point of the Mangian migration was from Saveki and the Shades. The natives of the Penrins speak of going down to Saveki in death. And they say their first ancestors came up as heaven bursters from the same country. All such origins are mythical, not historical or geographical. Although the mystical land gets localized on the surface of the earth as it is in a heptonomy of the Harvey Isles, Saveki was known as the home of the ancestors, but the only ancestors first known were the ancestral spirits, and it was these Asmanis that sought deliverance from the underworld. In one of the traditions, the Egyptians were reputed to come from the land of Puanta, the Taniter, or country of the gods, the land of glory, or the golden land, when it is said to the sun god, Adoration to thee who arisest out of the golden, it means out of Puanta, the netherland of dawn. This land of the gods, as a mythical locality, was in the underworld, not on the surface of our earth. It is not the Puanta that was geographical in the south. The people from Puanta, the land of the gods, are those who had a solar origin. They issued from the land of glory with the sun. The gods and the glorified came up from this divine land when they emerged from Puanta in the Orient. One title of the first chapter in the ritual is the chapter of introducing the mummy into the Tuat on the day of burial. This applies to the mummy interred on earth, and also to the Osiris or Mani Cinementa, who was figured in the mummy form. The Tuat is a place of entrance to and egress from the underworld. And in the pyramid texts, those who are in the Tuat are called the Tuata. Now, as the Tuat was in Tanen, the land, Ta, beneath the waters of the Nen, they are the Tuata Tanen in whom we propose to identify the Irish mythical heroes or divine ancestors called the Tuatha de Danann. In the oldest account of the Tuatha, it is said they came from heaven. 
Therefore, their origin was not human. And issuing from the Tuat of Amenta, they came from the lower paradise of Tu, from which they brought the wisdom and the symbols of the Egyptians as their sacred treasures, including the four precious things belonging to the Tuatha de Danan. The Tuatha are described as the gods and the not gods, a title that exactly corresponds to the Egyptian two classes of spirits called the gods and glorified. According to Geraldus in his Topographia Hibernia, it was a guess of the learned that the Tuatha were of the number of the exiles driven out of heaven. And if they were of those who came from the land of promise and issued from the Tuat, they would come from the subterranean Aru or earthly paradise. The hills and mounds of Aaron are the places of entrance to and exit from the invisible world of Elfinland, which answers to the hidden earth of the Manes and Amenta. When humorized by tradition, the Tuatha de Danan are said to have retired into the hills and mounds after they were utterly defeated in battle. In other legends, Dagda and his sons were once the rulers over this netherland. They are said to lie buried there with the Sid, or fairy mound of the Bruch, as covering for their resting place. The Bruch was originally the place of burial. He who sleeps at Phile is he who sleeps in the Bruch, the Bruch, or Buri. The name written in hieroglyphics is Piruk, equals Bruch. And there the mummy slept in the Burg of Amenta, or with the Tuatha in the Tuat of the Netherworld. The Divine Mother of the Tuatha is known by the name of Danan. The Tuatha are the tribe or people of the goddess Danan who is also the Dees of Death. Now there is an Egyptian goddess Tanan, who is a form of Hathor, the amorous queen in the earth of Tanan, the land of the nocturnal sun and the domain of the dead. The god Tanan is lord of that land, and the goddess is identified with Hathor by her headdress. The name of Tanan may also be written Tan. This agrees with the naming of the Welsh and Irish goddess Danu, or Danan. Her names takes the form of Dawn in Welsh, and the deities who descend from her, like Gwydion and Arianrod, are called the Children of Dawn. The Tuatha de Danan are also termed the Ferde, or Men of the Goddess. Hence, we propose to identify the goddess Tanan with Danan, or Danu, the great mother of the Tuatha de Danan who were the people of the goddess as the souls of the dead in the divine Niterkar, i.e. in Tannin, and who issued from the Tuat with the sun or solar god as the men of the goddess, who was Tannin in Egypt, Danin in Ireland, and Dawn in Britain. The men of the goddess, as we suggest, were the Tuata of the pyramid texts, who as divine ancestors became the Irish Tuatha de Danan. The same word is represented by the Irish Tuath for the tribe, Breton Tud, Gothic Thuda, Saxon Theod for a people, the Oscan Tuatha for a community. It is also extant in the name of the Teutons. One of the chief attributes of the Tuatha de Danan is the power they have of assuming any form at will. 
and this is a supreme trait of those who come forth when the Tuat is opened. Chapter 64 is one by which the Tuata take all forms that each desireth, whether on entering or coming forth from this womb of Amenta. The transformation of the Manis has come to be called shape-shifting, but there is no beginning with it as a faculty of the wizards in Ireland. There are various hints in the Irish fairy lore of the Tuatha de Danann being one with the spirits of the dead. Their relation to the prehistoric mounds is the same as that of the Tuatha, with the Mount of Amenta. There is also a still prevailing confusion in the Irish mind betwixt the fairies and the ghosts, which is very natural when we know that the fairies originated in the spirits of the elements, which have got mixed up with the manis of the dead. According to Caesar, the Druids taught the Gauls that they were all descended from Dispater, the Demiurge, that is, from the god of Hades or Amenta, who was Tanan as consort of the goddess, and whose name was taken by Tatanan, the better known Dispater, who was earlier than Osiris in the Egyptian cult, and from whom the solar race ascended, whether from Puanta or from the Tuat. Thus interpreted, the Tuatha, or tribes who brought the ancient wisdom out of Lower Egypt, or the Tuat, may have been the genuine Egyptians after all, as the much derided traditions of the Celte or the Kimri yet allege and strenuously maintain. The oasis of Tuat is another bit of ancient Egypt still surviving in the country of Morocco, where it testifies like some strange boulder on the surface to the buried past. The birthplace of the stellar races was in the celestial north. The solar race were they who came forth from the east, and going down to Amenta as Manis, they were the westerners, and coming forth, they are the easterners. Thus, when we are told that Abraham came from Ur of the Kazdim, or the Magi, which was his birthplace, that goes far to identify him as a solar god, just as Laban, the white one, was a lunar deity, and Ur, a mythical locality. Ur is an Egyptian name for that which is eldest, first, great, principal. The course of the sun god by day is reckoned to run from Ta-Ur to Am-Ur, i.e. from east to west. Ta-Ur, then, is Egyptian for the land of the east, and the migration thence is solar, that is, mythical and would be astronomical when the birthplace is designated Ur of the Kazdim, or Chaldees. Ur of the Kazdim is self-identified by name with the Magi, astrologers or astronomers. Moreover, the frequent coupling of Ur and Martu in the astrological tablets points to Ur as a name for the East being juxtaposed to Martu for the West. Ur and Martu meaning east and west, and not Ur, a city on earth, and Martu, a quarter in the heavens. It has been pointed out by translators that various place names in the Egyptian Book of the Dead denote celestial localities, and are not geographical. They are names in the astronomical mythology which had been first derived from Egypt on earth, that were afterwards applied to Upper Egypt in heaven and Lower Egypt in Amenta. The heaven above and a mental below were divided into Upper and Lower Egypt, 
the Egyptian cities of Thinis, Hermopolis, Memphis, Thebes, and Anu, and others were repeated in the planisphere as mythical localities, which furnish place names for the eschatology and the ritual. When Osiris triumphs and joy goeth its round in Thinis, that is, the celestial, not the earthly city, when the deceased in Amenta exclaims, May Saket, the Divine One, lift me up so that I may arise in heaven and issue my behest in Memphis. It is the heavenly Memphis, the celestial Hakata, or spirit house of Ta, the enclosure of the white hall on high, that is meant. When the priest says in the first chapter of the ritual, I baptize with water and tattoo and anoint with oil and abydos. The scene of the baptism is in Amenta, not on earth. Raket, the place where the two divine sisters waited and wept for the lost Osiris, was a locality in the earth of eternity. But Raket was also geographical in Egypt. At first, the localities as Egyptian were topographical. Next, they were constellated as uranographical. And finally, they constituted a double Egypt of the other world in the earth and heaven of eternity. The Egyptian exodus is a mystery of Amenta. It is described in the ritual as the peri Heru, or coming forth today, from the Hades of Egypt and the desert. Thus, when Horus comes forth in his resurrection, it is said that Egypt and the desert are at peace. Egypt and the desert were the two parts in the double earth that was divided between Sut and Horus, betwixt whom was internecine war that ended temporarily the coming of the Prince of Peace who came to set the prisoners free from the land of bondage, of drought and darkness, of Apap and the plagues of Egypt in the underworld. The sufferers depicted in the mythos were at first the stars that fell down headlong into the abyss to be swallowed by the dragon, of whom it is said, Eternal Devourer is his name. This was in the astronomical mythology. In the eschatology, the prisoners are the manis, or body souls of the dead, who passed into Amenta, the earth of eternity, as it were by way of the grave. Both were the children of light, mythical or eschatological, otherwise the children of Ra, at war forever with the creatures of darkness in the nether earth. The exodus, or coming forth from this nether Egypt, is represented astronomically on the great Mendes steel. On one side, Horus Behutet, the great lord, lord of heaven, and giver of life, is described as coming out of the horizon on the side of Upper Egypt. And on the other side of the steel, the coming out of Lower Egypt, spoken of instead. That is the exodus from Keb, or Lower Egypt, which is a manta in the eschatology. This is the exodus from Egypt of the lower earth, according to the representation in the solar mythos that preceded the version in the eschatology by which it was followed and enforced. In the making of Amenta, the Egyptians mapped out Egypt and the netherworld in accordance with Egypt on earth, only on a vaster scale. They had their lower and upper Egypts in the other life as they had in this, but kept the Egyptian original of the Greek, Eugoptus, is more expressly the lower Egypt, hence the lower of the two Egypts in the mythical representation. This was the Egypt below, through which the nocturnal sun and the souls of the deceased passed on their way up to the land of liberty and light. This was the Egypt where the Lord, 
as Osiris or the elder Horus, was crucified in the tat, or where the solar god suffered his mortal agony, his death and burial, the Egypt from which he rose again. Here was the wilderness of the wanderings during the 40 days of the Egyptian Lent, which represented the 40 days of the seed that was buried in the earth to attain the new life and the regermination of Osiris, which 40 days were disguised as 40 years in the historic version of the Jewish Exodus. It is unfortunate and humiliating to us as a nation that Egyptology and Assyriology and England should have first fallen into the hands of devout believers in the biblical history. Archaeology had to call itself biblical in order that a society might be founded for the study of Egyptology and Assyriology. And Egyptian exploration was for a long time limited to looking for biblical sites in Egypt, which are only to be met with as mythical localities in Amenta. Nor is this mania of the historic-minded yet entirely extinct. Jewish or Gentile commentators who know nothing of the astronomical mythology or the Egyptian origin of the Hebrew legends, have never been able to apply the comparative method to these writings. There is but one Egypt for them. But there was another lower Egypt, another Red Sea, another dragon, another deliverance from Rahab, and the Apap monster, and another Exodus, which have not hitherto been taken into account by the Hebraists. It was not to Egypt topographically that the ransomed of the Lord were to return singing the songs of Zion. There is another and a truer version of these mystical matters possible, even as there was of old. The creation of Amenta in the Egyptian mythos had been already explained as the work of Ta and the seven Nemu, or Navis, who were his assistants in the opening of the underworld and who in the Hebrew rendering became the seven princes that digged the well, referred to in one of the fragments of ancient lore, which seven princes in the Semitic legends are identified with the chariot of the lesser bear. Amenta was a second terra firma for the souls of the departed, a mental fulcrum to the eye of faith laid on the physical foundation of the solar mythology for those who traveled the eternal road. Thus, the origin of the Exodus as Egyptian was in the coming forth of the heavenly bodies from below the horizon and the mythical representation. This was followed by the coming forth of the Manis from dark to day, from death to life, from bondage to liberty, from lower to upper Egypt in the eschatology. In the coming forth of the Israelites from the Hades of Egypt and the desert, it is said the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might go by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night departed not from before the people. It is possible that the zodiacal light supplied a natural image for the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire described in the book of Exodus. The zodiacal light is a phenomenon visible in Egypt at certain seasons of the year. It is seen as a conical pillar of cloud towards the east in the morning, just before sunrise, and towards the west at sunset. In the pale light of dawn, it is a pillar of cloud. And in the ruddy glow of sundown, it becomes a veritable pillar of fire. It is said of the Great One God, the Living One who liveth everlastingly, and who was Atum Puhi in his temple at On. 
He traverseth the heavens and compasseth the netherworld each day. He travels in the cloud to separate heaven and earth and again to unite them. That is, at the morn and evening in making the passage of Amenta. The Lord of the cloud is also addressed as the guide of navigation. The flame of the sun is the protection of those who cross the double earth. He who commands heaven causes his disc to appear in the desert. He who purifies the water appears on the liquid abyss. He marches for the dead, for those who are overturned. The opening chapters of the Book of the Dead are called the Harry M. Hru, or Coming Forth Today. In other words, this was the Kamite exodus of the Manis from Amenta in the eschatological phase of the mythos, which has been converted by literalization into the history found in the Book of Exodus. The Hebrew Marchen are the legendary remains of the Egyptian mythos. Whether in the book of Genesis or the book of Exodus, the coming forth today with which the ritual opens is the Egyptian Exodus, and the Hebrew Exodus is likewise the coming forth today. An entrance to the mythical Amenta, previously shown, was localized at Abydos as the cleft or the mouth of the rock a narrow gorge in the Libyan range of hills. Opposite this entrance stood the temple of Osiris Kent Amenta, a name which denotes the opening to the interior of Amenta. Through this gorge, the solar bark passed into the mountain of the west and bore the image of the dying solar god on board. Once a year also there was a feast of the dead, or as we have it in survival of all souls and there came a funeral flotilla to the mouth of the cleft on one of the first nights of the year. This answers in the mythos to the starting point in time of the Jewish exodus as history in the first month of the year. Two ways of entering the other world are represented in two different categories of the ancient legend, both of which are derived from the same fundamental origin. One is by means of the dividing waters, the other by means of the passage that opens and closes in the earth at evening or in the equinox. In the Egyptian mythos, the entrance to Amenta is both by land and water. The god on board the solar bark, or the children of Ra, equals Israel on board the bark of souls, pass through the cloven rock by water. Previously, the water had to be divided for the travelers to pass. But the waters thus divided were celestial, being mythical. They are the waters divided by Shu Anher, with his rod as leader of the Manis from Amenta up to heaven. It is not written in the Old Testament what the Lord did for Israel in the Vale of Arnon. But the Targum of Jerusalem tells us that when the Beni Israel were passing through the gorge or defile, the Moabites were hidden in the caverns of the valley, intending to rush out and slay them. But the Lord signed to the mountains, and they literally laid their heads together to prevent it. They closed upon the enemy with a clap and crushed the chiefs of the mighty ones, so that the valleys were overflowed with the blood of the slain. Meanwhile, Israel walked over the tops of the hills and knew not the miracle and the mighty act which the Lord was doing in the valley of Arnon. Thus the miracle of the Red Sea was reversed. In the one case, the waters stood up in heaps and were turned into hills. In the other, the solid hills flowed down and were fused, whilst Israel passed over them as if they were a level plain. In the one miracle, the Red Sea was turned into dry ground. In the other, the dry ground was turned into a red sea of blood. 
The hills that rushed together to make a level plain are a familiar figure of the equinox, to be found in varied forms of legendary lore. This account, therefore, is as good as the biblical one, and it tends to prove that both belong to the astronomical mythos, and that the crossing here was in the equinox. In the mythos of Amenta, the promised land of plenty, the land of corn and wine and oil, was the Aru field of divine harvest that awaited the righteous who had been wanderers in the wilderness and who fought their way to it through all the obstacles of the underworld. These obstacles can still be traced in the Jewish narrative compared with the books of Amenta and the mysteries of Tot. All through the journey of this Egypt underground, the objects besought and fervently prayed for are good passage through the waters and all other hindrances, and a safe way out upon the eastern side where lay the promised land. One great object of the Manis in knowing the words of great magical power in Amenta is to obtain command over the waters. The deceased prays that he may have command over the waters which he has to pass through, even as Sut had commanded of force on the night of the great disaster. These waters are the Red Sea of the Jewish Exodus, in which the Apap dragon lurks and lies in wait. The later scholiasts tell us that the habitation of this monster was the Red Sea. Thus, the Red Sea is identifiable with the Lake of Putrata, in which the dragon lurked that lived upon the drowned, the dragon that was turned into the cruel pharaoh in the Hebrew version of the Exodus. It is evident that the Jews were in possession of an esoteric rendering of the same mystical matter as is presented exoterically in the books ascribed to Moses. There were two versions of the dark sayings and the hidden wisdom, the esoteric and the exoteric, amongst them as there were amongst the Egyptians, and these have doubled the confusion. The Christian world has based its structure of the belief simply and solely on the exoteric version. Thus the door of the past just now being opened anew in Egypt was closed to them and locked. They were left outside without the key, and in the darkness of the grossest, crassest ignorance the Christian faith was founded. We have now to recover such history as is possible from the Pentateuch by eliminating the mythos and the eschatology. Fragments of the original mythos crop up in the Haggadoth, the Kabbalah, the Talmud, and other Hebrew writings which tend to show that in the earlier time, the lowermost strata, the same matter had been known to the Jews themselves as non-historical. Thus it is provable and will be proved that biblical history has been mainly derived from misappropriated and misinterpreted mythology, and that the mythology is demonstrably Egyptian, which can only be explained in accordance with the Egyptian wisdom. This is not to say that the books of Genesis, Exodus, and Joshua are intentional forgeries, but that the data were already more or less extant as subject matter of the mysteries, and that an exoteric version of the ancient wisdom has been rendered in the form of historic narrative and ethnically applied to the Palestinian Jews. The most learned of the rabbis have most truthfully and persistently maintained that the books attributed to Moses do but contain an exoteric explanation of the secret wisdom though they may not trace the Gnosis to its Egyptian source. The chief teachers have always insisted on the allegorical nature of the Pentateuch. Two laws, they tell us, were delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai. One was committed to writing, as in the Pentateuch. The other was transmitted orally from generation to generation. 
as is acknowledged by the psalmist when he says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. Parables and dark sayings of old are the allegories of mythology and enigmas of the ancient wisdom uttered after the manner of the mysteries. Now, the subject of this psalm is the story of Israel and Egypt and the exodus from the old dark land. The plagues of Egypt are described. He set his sign in Egypt. He turned their rivers into blood. He sent them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He also gave their increase to the caterpillar and their labor to the locust. He killed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost and smote all the firstborn in Egypt. The coming forth is also described. The psalmist tells of the marvelous things that were done in the land of Egypt. How the Lord clove the sea and caused them to pass through, whilst the waters were made to stand as in heap. How he led them forth with a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. How he clove the rock in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as out of the depths, and opened the doors of heaven and rained down manna upon them to eat. This was heard and known orally as a tale that is told in dark sayings of old, which did not originate in the biblical history of the Exodus. They are tried as silver is tried, in the refineries of the nether earth. They go through fire and through water, and are brought out into a place of abundance in the pleasant Aru fields. This journey is described in various psalms. Working salvation in the midst of the earth, thou didst divide or break up the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces. In the Hebrew song of Moses, we are in the same nether earth where the matter is eschatological. The adversaries are the same opponents of the chosen people. The same, that is, in the book of Deuteronomy as in the book of the dead. Ezekiel makes an allusion to the wilderness of the land of Egypt, which points to the lower Egypt of the mythos and amenta. Egypt itself as the land of the living, the cultivated land, was the very opposite of the wilderness. Amenta in the book of Hades and also in the ritual is described as consisting of two parts called Egypt and the desert land or wilderness. This latter was the domain of Sut in the Osirian mysteries. One part of the domain named Anrutef is self-described as the place where nothing grows. It was a desert of fruitless, leafless, rootless sand, in which there was no water for the people to drink. Or, if any, the water was made bitter or salt by the adversary Sut or the Apap dragon. The struggle of Sut and Horus, or Osiris, in the desert lasted forty days, as these were commemorated in the forty days of the Egyptian Lent during which time Sut, as the power of drought and sterility, made war on Horus in the water and the buried germinating grain. Meantime, the flocks of Ra were famishing for lack of pasture and for want of water in the wilderness. These forty days spent in the desert of the mythos had confessedly been extended into the forty years of the history. They were the forty days of suffering in the wilderness of the underworld, which lay betwixt the autumn and the vernal equinox. And when it is threatened by Iho that only the children shall go forth with Joshua, it is said, Your children shall be wanderers in the wilderness even forty days, for every day a year. 
The lower Egypt of Amenta was a land of dearth and darkness to the Manis. It was the domain of Sut at the entrance in the west. Here was the typical wilderness founded on the sands that environed Egypt. Aru, or the garden far to the eastward, was an oasis in the desert, ready for the Manis, who were fortunate enough to reach that land of promise. The domain of Sut was a place of plagues. All the terrors of nature were congregated there, including drought and famine, fiery flying serpents and unimaginable monsters. There were the hells of heat in which the waters were on fire. There were the slime pits, the blazing bitumen and brimstone flames of Sodom and Gomorrah, the desert of engulfing sands, the lakes of fire, and the deluge of overwhelming waters had to be crossed, and all the powers of death and hell opposed the passage of the glorified elect, the chosen people of the Lord who were bound for bliss in the land where their redemption dawned upon the summit of the mount. This then was the land of bondage, where the Manis were in duress need of a deliverer. The typical tyrant and taskmaster in the Hebrew history has never been identified on earth, and it may be somewhat difficult to identify him in Amenta, but it is not impossible. The devourer of the people in that land takes several forms. The Apap monster lies in wait and has to be encountered at the entrance to the valley of the shadow of death. There is one typical devourer. The Red Sea is his dwelling place, and Eternal Devourer is his name. Another of his names is Matisse, the hard, cruel, flinty-hearted. He is described as having the skin of a man and the face of a hound. His dwelling is in the Red Lake of Fire, where he lives upon the shades of the damned and eats the livers of princes. As he comes from the Red Sea, his overthrowal is in the Red Sea, like the overwhelming of Pharaoh and his host. The same typical devourer has another figure in the Judgment Hall, where it is named Amamet. Here it is the head of a crocodile. Where we might speak of the jaws of death, hell, or destruction, the Egyptians said or showed the jaws of the crocodile. Those who are condemned to be devoured pass into the jaws of the devourer. Thus, the crocodile is the devourer, the typical tyrant, the cruel, hard-hearted monster who bars the gates of exit and will not let the suffering people go up from the land of bondage. When the Manis seeks his place of refuge in Amenta or in the Ama, he prays for deliverance from the crocodile in the land of bondage. He also says, Let not the powers of darkness, the Sabao, have the mastery over me. And he prays that he may reach the divine dwelling, which has been prepared for him in the Aru fields of peace and plenty, where there is corn of untold quantity in that land toward which his face is set. This is the chapter by which one cometh forth today and passeth through Amma, or the Amma, in seeking deliverance from the crocodile or dragon in the land of bondage. Protection is sought in Amma, because the God who dwells there in everlasting light is the overthrower of the crocodile. The crocodile is the dragon of Egypt to the Hebrew scribes, who uses it as an image of the Pharaoh. When Ezekiel writes, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lieth in the midst of his rivers. The imagery is derived from the Egypt of Amenta, however it may be afterwards applied. 
The great dragon, as typical devourer in the land of bondage, is here identified with the pharaoh of Egypt, as it is also has been in the book of Exodus. Amenta is spoken of at least once in the ritual as the place wherein the living are destroyed. It is also described as the kasu, or burial place. One of the twelve divisions of this underworld was known as the sandy realm of Sakari, a place of internment. The dead were buried underneath their mounds in this domain of Sakari, which was a wilderness of sand. This is the probable origin of the wilderness full of buried corpses in the Book of Numbers. For after all, the promises made to the children of Israel, they are suddenly turned upon by the Lord and told that their carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. Your little ones will I bring in, but as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. Now the carcasses that were to rot in the wilderness are equivalent to the mummies buried in the sandy realm of Osiris Sakari, god of the coffin and the desert sand. In the Kamite eschatology, those who made the exodus from Amenta to the world of day are those who rise from the dead in the desert called the Sandy Realm of Sakari, equals the wilderness. Moreover, they rise again as children who are called the younglings of Shu, and Shu was the leader and forerunner of this new generation of divine beings, called his younglings from the Sandy Realm of Sakari when their redemption from that land of bondage dawned. The wilderness of the nether earth being a land of graves, this gives an added significance to the question asked of Moses. Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Which, as the domain of Osiris Sakari was depicted as a cemetery of sand, where the dead awaited the coming of Horus, Shu, Apuat, or Anup, the guide, and Tat, the lunar light, as servants of Ra, the supreme one God, to wake them in their coffins and lead them from this land of darkness to the land of day. Amenta, as the place of graves, is frequently indicated in the Hebrew scriptures, as in the description of the great typical burial place in the valley of Haman Gog. This was in the Egypt described in the book of Revelation as the city of dead carcasses where also their lord was crucified as Ta Sakari, or Osiris Tot. Amenta had been converted into a cemetery by the death and burial of the solar god, who was represented as the mummy in the lower Egypt of the nether earth. The manis were likewise imaged as mummies in their coffins, or beneath their mounds of sand. They also rose again in the mummy likeness of their lord, and went up out of Egypt in the constellation of the mummy, Sahu Orion or in the coffin of Osiris that was imaged in the greater bear. In the ritual, the power of darkness called the devourer of the ass, which was a solar zootype, is Am-A-A, the great, great devourer by name. Am signifies the devourer, of whom it is said eternal devourer is his name. The Am-A-A, the great, great devourer, is apparently the Amalek of the biblical legend. Melek, the lord of rule, being suffixed to the name of Am to describe the character. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and Rephidim in the region of the Rephaim, Sheol, or Amenta. The Lord hath sworn he will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. These two are the great opponents, who were Apap, the devourer of the ass, and Ra in the wars of Amenta. 
The wars of the Lord, as Egyptian, were waged against the adversaries of Ra, or Osiris and Amenta. These adversaries were the powers of evil, the Apap dragon of drought, the serpent of darkness, the Sabao, the Sami, together with Sut and his co-conspirators in the later rendering of the mythos. The adversaries of the good being are annihilated in the tank of flame. Osiris is thus addressed, Hail to thee, the great, the mighty, whose enemies are laid prostrate at their blocks. Hail to thee, whose slaughterest the Sabao and annihilatest Apap. Thou hast utterly destroyed all the enemies of Osiris. Chapter 18 is in the celebration of the triumph of Osiris over all his adversaries, who are slaughtered and destroyed. The great slaughter of the adversaries is carried out in the netherworld, or secret earth of Amenta, at a place called Sutenken. Also, the plagues of Egypt had previously been let loose by the Lord on Abram's count. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh with great plagues before Abram went up out of Egypt. This is a bit of the same myth of Amenta, which was earlier than the Mosaic Exodus. The scenery of Sodom and the pits of bitumen may be found in the ritual, together with the Night of Reckoning, which is the night of fire against the overthrown, the night of chaining the wicked in their hells, the night on which their vital principles are destroyed. In the Hebrew version, this reckoning on the fatal night when the Typhonians or Sodomites were destroyed in the hells of fire and sulfur takes the shape of reckoning, whether there are 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, or 10 righteous persons to save the doomed city from destruction. In the legend of the monkey, the god who reposes in Amenta and traverses the darkness and the shadows, when he rises, gives up the pig to the plague. Book of Hades. Now the pig was a type of the evil Typhon. In one of the pictures, a pig is called the devourer of the arm of Osiris. He's being driven by the monkey, which was a lunar zootype. Thus, the pig which is here given to the plagues shows that in the true mythos, the plagues of Egypt were let loose on the Typhonians, or powers of evil. The Sabao, the Sami, the conspirators of Sut, the children of darkness, whether from a physical or moral point of view, and that this was in the lower Egypt of Amenta. These, in the Hebrew version, have been transformed into ethnical Egyptians who so cruelly oppressed and preyed upon the suffering Israelites. Thus, the plagues of Egypt occurred twice over in a land which was not the Egypt of the pharaohs, and the people who suffered from them were not Egyptians. This agrees with the hidden gnosis in the wisdom of Solomon, and also in the book of Revelation, where the plagues are of the same mystical nature, but are only seven instead of ten in number. The wilderness was obviously a place or state in which the shoes and clothes of the people did not wear out. This was only possible in the manis in the desert of Amenta. The two regions of the clothed and unclothed are named in relation to the judgment hall of Mati. The clothed and unclothed are well-known terms for the elect and the rejected manis, the children of light and the offspring of darkness. In the trial scenes, the spirits who are judged to be sound and pure are told that they may pass on as the clothed whilst the condemned are designated the unclothed. Thus, the clothed ones pass safely and freely through the desert region of the unclothed. In the Hebrew version, we read, 
I have led you forty years in the wilderness, and your clothes are not waxen old upon you, and your shoe is not waxen old upon your feet. There can be no doubt about these being the divinely clothed and fed, as described in the ritual, where they eat of the tahen and drink of the water made sweet by the tree of life, and pass as the clothed through the wilderness which is called the region of the naked. To say that the clothes and shoes of God's own people did not wear out during a period of forty years is a mode of showing they were divinely made for everlasting wear, but not on earth. Where nowadays they wear out all too fast for Gentile as for Jew. Apparently the Hebrew Mata represents the Egyptian Tahen which was given to the Manis for food in the wilderness of Amenta. In passing through the desert or the region of the unclothed, the Manis tells of the Tahen that was given for sustenance. So far as the Tahan is known, it agrees well enough with the Hebrew Mana. When the dew that lay on the ground was gone up, behold, upon the face of the wilderness a small round thing, such as the hoarfrost on the ground, which was like unto wafers made with honey. Wafers made of tahen were also eaten sacramentally as food of heaven in the Osirian Eucharist. In the mystery of opening the mouth and of giving breath to the breathless ones in Amenta, the Egyptians made use of an instrument called the Yurhika, or great magical power. It is sometimes a sinuous serpent-like rod without the serpent's head. At others, it has the head of the serpent on it, united with the head of a ram. Both ram and serpent were types of the deity Neph, who represented the breath of life or the spirit. Neph, Hebrew Nepesh, which was assumed to enter the Osiris when the mummy's mouth was typically opened to inhale the breath of future existence. Here then is a magical rod that turned into a serpent, which may be seen figured in the vignettes to the ritual as a form of the magical rod with which the mouth of the deceased was opened in the mysteries of Amenta. It is held by the tail in the hand of the magician or priest who performs the ceremony of apru, i.e. opening the mouth, in illustration of the chapters by which the mouth is opened in the netherworld. The rod is changed into a serpent at the time when the Lord is desirous for Moses to become his mouthpiece. Moses objects, whereupon the Lord asks, Who hath made man's mouth? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt speak. The contest ends in Moses having his own way, and in Aaron becoming a mouth to Moses. Moses is to take in his hand the rod wherewith he is to do the signs. Here then we identify the serpent rod of the Egyptian priests that was known by name as the great magical power, and it was sometimes a rod and others a serpent. This we take to be the original of that rod with which the tricks are played in the Hebrew Marchen by the Lord God of Israel for the purpose of frightening Pharaoh. And the Lord said unto him, Moses, what is that in thine hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, Put forth thine hand, and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand, and laid hold of it, and it became a rod in his hand. The type of great magical powers thus turned to account in astonishing the natives, and in giving lessons to the magicians of Egypt. In both scenes we have the opening of the mouth. In both we have the serpent rod with which the signs and wonders are wrought. 
and it is admitted that Pharaoh had wise men, sorcerers, magicians of Egypt, who had rods which became serpents as types of transformation. These rods are to be seen in the hands of the wise men portrayed in the ritual, but not for any such fool's play as described in the book of Exodus. There are two serpents in Egyptian symbolism. One is a type of evil, the other is a good serpent. One is the apap of drought, darkness and death, or negation. The other is the Uraeus serpent of life. It was worn on the frontlets of the gods and the glorified, manis, as a sign of protection and salvation or safety. In the chapter by which a person is not devoured or bitten to death by the eater of the head, which is a snake, an appeal is addressed to the solar Uraeus as the source of life, the flame which shineth on the forehead of the glorified. In the seventh abode, there is a serpent named Retuk, a cartouche, in my copy reads Rurik or Rerik, that lives on the manis and is said to annihilate their magical virtue. The speaker says, I am the master of enchantments. He is the magician, the prototype of pharaohs who worked by enchantment. The fiery serpent of the wilderness may be traced in this great serpent of Amenta, whose name is Dweller in his flame. However rendered, the hieroglyphics identify the mythical serpent of fire as the fiery serpent of the Hebrew Marchant. The lifting up of the serpent can also be paralleled in the text when the speaker exclaims, I am raised up to, or as, the serpent of the sun. That is, the Uraeus, the good serpent when compared with Apap. The serpent Acre is joined to the nocturnal sun as he traverses the Amenta, or the wilderness by night. Thus, Acre, the serpent of fire, is the good serpent that is raised up as the fiery serpent in the Exodus. The evil serpent Apap is then told that he must retreat before this uplifted solar serpent, which accompanies the orb in the Egyptian triad, and in his presence of the revivifying sun. And in this way, the mythos furnished matter for the Marchen and the folktales about the evil serpents that bit the wandering Israelites and how they were saved and healed by an image of the good serpent, which always had been lifted up in Egypt as a solar symbol of healing and of life. In playing off the serpent of fire against the serpent of darkness, the deceased anticipates Moses with Nehustan, the brazen. He exclaims triumphantly, I understand the mystical representations of things, and by that means I repulse it, Pap. Also in the zodiac of Esni, fiery, Flying serpents are to be seen on the wing in the decans of cancer, as the sign of heat and drought. The children of Israel, as followers of the solar god, are the children of Ra, or Atum-Ra, under whatsoever racial name. And these are to be met with even by name, making the passage through the lower Egypt of Amenta on their way to the Promised Land. People named the Ayu, an Egyptian plural equivalent to our word Jews, are described in the underworld. Their god is the ass-headed Ayu, or Ayu, who was one of the gods of Israel that led the people up out of Egypt. That is, the ass was the one of the zootypes of the god Ayu, as the calf, bullock, or ox was another. We had to dredge this nether earth for much of the sunken treasure of Egyptian wisdom that has long been lost in its authentic shape. And in Amenta, we find the ass-headed god of the Jews, respecting whom they have been so ignorantly derided and maligned. His name, we repeat, is Au, 
Ao, Ai, or Ayu, both as God and as the ass in Old Egyptian. And this name survived in the forms of Ayo, Ayao, Ayahu, Ayu, and others. The god was Atum-Ra in Egypt. And Ayu, the ass-headed, is one of the types of the solar god. Ayu appears ass-headed in Amenta as a god stretched out upon the ground, who has the solar disc upon his head, with the ears of an ass projecting beside the disc. He is holding the rope by which the solar boat was towed up from the netherworld. The figure lying on the ground denotes the god who was Atum Ayu, the sun by night and the earth of eternity. The people who are with Ayu in this scene are amongst those who guard the rope of Ayu and do not allow the serpent to pop to mount towards the boat of the great god. These are the Ayu as the people of Ayu. It is said of them, those who are in this scene walk before Ra, Atum Ayu. They charm or catalepse apap for him. They rise with him towards the heavens. The book of Amenta, called the Book of Hades by Lefebvre, shows this god in his mummified form as one with Osiris in the body and with Ra in soul. Otherwise, it is Atum in the body or mummy and Ayu in soul. And just as Ra, the Holy Spirit, descends in tattoo on the mummy Osiris, and as Horus places his hands behind Osiris in this resurrection, so Ayu comes to his body, the mummy in Amenta. Those who tow Ra along say, The god comes to his body, the god is towed along towards his mummy. The sun god, whether as Atum Ayu, Ayu or Ae, or Osiris Ra, is a mummy in Amenta and a soul in heaven. The imagery is quite natural. The nocturnal sun became a mummy as a figure of the dead, and a soul or spirit in its resurrection as a figure of the living. Atum or Osiris, as the sun in Amenta, is the mummy buried down in Kept or Lower Egypt, and Ayu in the one rendering, or Horus in the other, raises the mummy god. This is the meaning of the ass-eared Ayu when he is portrayed in the act of hauling at the rope of the sun or raising the mummy in Amenta. The god Ayu is represented mummified upon the tomb of Ramses VI, that is, in the character of Atum the father, buried as the mummy in Lower Egypt. Thus we identify the ass god Ayu or Ayu, an ancient Egyptian name of the ass, in Lower Egypt, and his followers, who are the Ayu by name, the followers of Ayu equals Ayu, then are the Ayu, Ayus, or the later Jews. They fight the battle of the sun god in the nether earth, where the dragon Apap was the cruel and pious oppressor. And when they do escape from this, the land of bondage for the Manis, they are the Ayu, or the Jews, who rise behind this god to heaven. And their exodus is from Kept, the lower Egypt of Amenta. The whole story of the faithful Israelites who would not bow down to the gods of Egypt is told in a few words relating to the Ayu, or Jews, in Amenta. As it is said, these are they who spoke the truth on earth and did not rise to adorations or heresies. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes.
This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.